a very practical observation. It's if you work really hard and if you put a lot of energy into the system and if you, and if your ears prick up whenever you see something that looks like an opportunity, if you notice the opportunities, then you can act on them. And it's like if I hadn't asked that, first of all, if I hadn't been so stupid and excited um, to ask somebody to borrow their laptop in the middle of a coffee shop, I wouldn't have met my photographer and who made the expedition a reality. And if I wasn't constantly looking, right? Like even on that interaction, man, who uh, this random girl, by the way, do you know a photographer? It's like, you have to be always ready to see an opportunity because if you don't see the opportunity, you can't act on it. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Joe Hockman today on the podcast, and I actually met... Well, first, Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Joey? Oh, wonderful. I am in Tampa, Florida. Actually, I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida today. Where Where are you right now? I'm actually sitting in my mom's Airstream. Uh, she came up to visit, uh, and we're in Chalida, Colorado, looking at the Arkansas River. It's such, it's a beautiful area. I was, I was just in Salida for my friend Brett's wedding and then for Fibork. And I, I happened to bring some magazines with me and I looked up the top tours in Salida and BB and I found independent whitewater at the top of the list in Salida. And then uh, through a series of people, I was connected with the head boatman for independent whitewater. And that happened to be you. Um, like Salida, it's a small, close-knit community. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. So what does the head boatman do at Independent Whitewater? What's, what's sort of your job? What do you do in the day-to-day? So I think that's a great question. And I think that this goes for any job that the better you get at it and the higher you work through the ranks, the less you do the thing that you were originally really good at. <laughs> so, you know, you start as a raft guide, double dipping, you know, running two trips a day, seven days a week. And then at some point, you're asked if you had boatmen, and then you start working on doing all the scheduling and managing all the guides and handling them. And like, it's like herding a very, very strange breed of cat, you know, they can be temperamental <laughs> and they can be, they get tired and grumpy and, you know, it's a very close-knit work environment where we all live together and work together and play together. The head boatman is is essentially the the interface between the owners and the guides. So I make sure that when people book trips, there is a boat and a guide and a vehicle to take them up to the river and then down the river. And then I'm also on the water every day. How many how many tours do you still do? Uh, I'll do one a day. Uh, every now and again, I'll take a day off and make sure, you know, we've got the schedule in order, but, um, two a day is not quite in the cards anymore because I've got to do the schedule at some point during those daylight hours. (laughs) Yeah. So how did you, how did you get into this? So the long version is there are a couple of things that, that put this seed uh, in my head, uh, in order to be able to say yes when the opportunity presented to me. So, when I was about 12, my mom took us on my brother and I down the Snake River on a commercial multi day. And so, I remember being on the Snake and seeing these raft guides and just thinking, man, these are the coolest guys ever. You know, they they do this really cool thing with these boats, and it's high adventure and exciting and fun. And then they get off the boats and they they start taking care of people, you know, they cook for people and they, they make people laugh and make people happy. And man, these guys are just the coolest people ever. And years later when I became, when I found out they're not in fact the coolest people ever, (laughs) but that was a key moment, you know? Um, And then the short version is, you know, I was my last year of college, I was working at a bar and the bar manager was also a raft guide and the company he was working for 
was low on guides. And he was like, Hey, do you want to go to guide school? And when he said that, I immediately said yes, because it was something that I'd wanted to do since I'd been on the snake when I was 12. Where, where is the snake river? The snake is up North. Um, man, I, what state I feel like. So I think that the section that we went on was up in Wyoming. You probably shouldn't quote me on that. I've not been out there since then. Gotcha. And do you, do you remember any of those guides names when you, when you met? When you were no, trying? not at all. Just the coolest dudes on earth. To yeah. To, I mean, you know. I think that, that, you know, at that age, it's like these people, at least for me, these people very quickly pass from the status of individual into the status of symbol, you know? Um, and they just kind of stood as this, as this, um, you know, idea in the back of my head for a long time. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely something that a lot of guides are good at remembering. Like when you have a kid on a tour, you know, it might be a long day. The parents might be a hassle, but those kids are looking at you like, dude, this guy with the paddle and giving me this speech about my life fest. This guy is total badass. I want to be just like him. For sure. And so those, <laughs> those guides that sort of forget that maybe for a little bit during the season, it's like, Hey, you got to remember this is, you know, you get one shot with these kids. Absolutely. And you never know who could have otherwise been a very productive member of society. And you've just turned them into a dirtbag grass guy. That's what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know from, I have a lot of uh, kayak, kayak guide friends up in Alaska and they, it's, they love their job and it's such a blast. I'm sure getting out on the water and, and doing it, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the best guys, one of the best jobs you could ever have. I mean, cause at the very most basic form, what we do is there are people who pay to do this thing because it's really fun and you're getting paid to do that thing. <laughs> and that's it. You know, I mean, it's really that simple. Your customers, you get them at their best, right? They're on vacation. They're free from the, the stresses of the everyday work life. And they're there to have fun. And you're paid to be the guy who's having the most fun on the boat. Because if you're doing that, then that energy is infectious and they will feel the same. And you get to spend time in beautiful places and make memories that hopefully last and influence the people that you take every day. Yeah. And you, you can show someone that maybe doesn't understand it or hasn't learned it yet, how to uh, just have that sense of wonder for nature again. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing about that is that you really are a facilitator of access, right? So, I mean, imagine your average customer is somebody who is probably not very physical. Um, This is just the average American, right? They spend most of their time, uh, on jobs that require them to sit indoors and they come home tired and they hang out with their kids for a few hours and they go to bed and they wake up and they do it again. And, and in that, the sort of well-worn paths that lead them through their everyday lives, interaction with nature is not really there and, and they don't have the skills or the, or the experience to be able to get themselves into the places that you get them to. And so not only are you serving as an example of somebody who cares about nature and you try to get them to care about nature, I mean, that's best case scenario. But like at the most basic form, they can't get into nature, into the places at least that you're taking them without you. And so that that facilitation of access is, is so huge because without you, they wouldn't even know what the thing is or be able to get to the thing that you're showing them. And that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So you told me a little bit before we started recording about this, uh, a canoe trip down the Amazon. Yeah. So I guess that's the ultra long version of, of why I'm a raft guide. So fast forward 12 years old, go down the salt or go down the, uh, the snake river. I'm like, Oh man, that's cool. 19, you know, I'm in college, decide I want to take some time off from college. I was laying in the bottom of my mom's pool in Austin trying to figure out what to do. I was just kind of like laying there looking up and I was like, you know, I should canoe the Amazon. <laughs> I don't know where the idea came, but I thought it was a good one. <laughs> and 
and I think that, you know, I just started going down the path to see, see if that was possible and what would it take to do and, and how was I going to do it? And, you know, obviously I didn't have the money to just be like, sweet, I'm going to buy all the stuff and head down there and awesome. You're right. Like, so like if I was going to do it, I was going to get sponsored. So then I started thinking about how can I get sponsored to do this thing that I've never done before and why would anybody trust me to do it on their dime? And I came up with a pretty good solution. So I approached a local nonprofit in Austin and that was affiliated with Rainforest Conservation in the Amazon Basin. And that was kind of their big deal. It's called the Rainforest Partnership. You know, I like put on my chacos, tried to look like I knew what I was doing. You know, I was like, I don't know, I dressed the part. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm not going to tell them <laughs> that. And I walked in and I said, Hey, my name is Joe Hawkman and I want to commute the Amazon. And you guys, don't have to give me any money to do it. All you have to do is, and I told him I'd bring a photographer, write stories, post them online as we're going, post photos so that we could put a, the idea was just putting a face to the name of Rainforest Conservation, showing them stories about the people in the area and a sort of boots on the ground perspective um, for people who had never seen that area and who don't really understand the thing that they're trying to protect, right? And the pitch was, and I'll raise all the money. All you have to do is let me do it under your name. And that's a hard thing to say no to. You know, free publicity, a big expedition that's going to, you know, cause a little stir in the community, and you don't have to pay for it. And there's some 19-year-old kid's going to go do all the work to get that money. So they said, yes. I mean, it's hard to say no to. And that was a really big lesson in terms of the, the scope of my, my career now as a guide is if you want something you can most of the time create a deal or create an idea. It's just really hard to say no to. And then you're in the door. And so they said, yes. And I started raising money and I knocked on doors. I canvassed at the university and all of that produced a little bit of money. But then the biggest donor that I got, and this sounds unbelievable, and I guess it is unbelievable, but it's not untrue. I was at a Snoop Dogg concert. (laughs) (laughs) And... (laughs) <laughs> there was a sign language interpreter at this Snoop Dogg concert. And after she was done working, there was another band and she and I danced and hung out. She asked me what I was up to. I told her about this Amazon, trans-Amazon expedition. Um, and she was like, wow, that's really interesting. I'm like, yeah, and blah, blah, blah. I'm raising money. And she said, well, meet me tomorrow morning for breakfast and pitch it to me. So, uh, we, you know, this is in Austin. So we met for breakfast burritos. And uh, the next morning, I pitched it for a tour, and she cut me a check for two thousand dollars. I ended up doing the trip on four thousand. <laughs> wow! 50%. So you know it. It all, yeah, it all comes down to Snoop Dogg, Joey. <laughs> Let me ask you this. And this then the, this is the question yeah. I need answered. Well, there are a few. So first, how fast were her hands? Extremely. Yeah, she she was very good. Um, from what I could tell, I mean. Obviously, I think that I'm um, not equipped to uh, pass judgment on sign language interpretation. But from what I could tell, you seem pretty confident and pretty agile. <laughs> yeah. To, to be able to do sign language for rap, you have to be, especially Snoop Dogg, you got to be quick. And then my, yeah. my other question, yeah. when you came up with this idea, had you ever been in the Amazon and had you done much canoeing? No. I had never been in the Amazon and I had never done a multi-day canoe trip. I mean, I'd like sat in a canoe, I'm sure at some point, but we didn't own canoes. You know, I'd never, no, I mean, I wasn't a boy scout. So, you know, it wasn't, I didn't go to summer camp and paddle around on the lake. It was just like, no, I mean, that was the extent of my experiences. I knew what canoes were and I knew that the Amazon was a place with a big river in it. (laughs) (laughs) okay so now you've got your four thousand dollars uh what do you what happens next well it gets weirder so you know as soon as you start collecting money things get really real really quickly and i had a buddy who i was going to do this trip with and he was going to be the photographer i was going to write the stories and we were going to be a two-man team and we were going to go canoe the amazon um (laughs) and you know, at this point, I he said he was in, 
I had collected a couple thousand dollars of other people's money. And he was like, all of a sudden, the reality of what I was doing was really setting in. And he was like, man, I don't think I'm ready for this. And he bailed. <laughs> and, oh, no. and so here we are. Yeah, here we are. We've got a bunch of money that's not ours. There's publicity that's starting to be generated. There's a team that is working on this project that is being employed by the Rainforest Partnerships. I mean, it's a real thing. And he just vanishes. You know, I just keep going. It's like, you're too deep now. Um, You just got to figure it out. And so I was sitting at a coffee shop one day and I got a call and I didn't tell them any of this, but you know, I just, you know, like I'll figure it out, but we just got to keep raising money and make this thing happen. So I'm sitting at this coffee shop uh, Maureen, this, at the time, she was an intern for uh, Rainforest Partnership. She calls me and says, hey, Joe, the, um, the website's up. You should check it out. I'm like so excited to see that thing. It's like, wow, it's actually real, right? It's got a web page. And so I, I, I look around the coffee shop. And this is like, you know, I didn't, this is 2009. So like I didn't have an iPhone or anything like that. Like, so I looked around the coffee shop for, a, for somebody with a laptop. And I saw this girl with a laptop and said, hey, can I borrow that? She's like, uh, yeah. I was like, sweet. I get on the website just because I was so excited to see it. And she uh, says, what is this? And I tell her what's going on and what we're doing. I'm raising money. And by the way, I'm looking for a photographer. Do you know anyone? And she says, yeah. <laughs> I think I know somebody you might be interested. <laughs> so I get a phone number. Uh, I get a phone number for a guy named Tim. And... Um, I called Tim up. We meet once. We go out to dinner and we chat. And a few weeks later, we're in Lima, Peru, about to embark on a couple thousand miles of paddling. (laughs) (laughs) He was a cool guy. You know, I mean, the, the thing, and that's another, so, you know, there are a couple of big lessons to be learned there that, like, again, helped me shape kind of my career once I moved into Whitewater, or it's like, the bottom line is, is if you're working hard enough um, and you're putting the energy in, things are going to happen. And I'm not like talking about, I'm not going to, the guy who's going to sit there and talk about manifesting this or like the power of positivity or, but you know, it's not me, right? It's a very practical observation. It's if you work really hard and if you put a lot of energy into the system and if you, and if your ears prick up, Whenever you see something that looks like an opportunity, if you notice the opportunities, then you can act on them. And it's like, if I hadn't asked that, first of all, if I hadn't been so stupid and excited um, to ask somebody to borrow their laptop in the middle of a coffee shop, I wouldn't have met my photographer who made the expedition a reality. And if I wasn't constantly looking, right? Like even on that interaction, man, who... Uh, this random girl, by the way, do you know a photographer? It's like, you have to be always ready to see an opportunity because if you don't see the opportunity, you can't act on it. Right. And then the other thing I learned is that it doesn't matter if Tim was a cool guy or not. He happened to be, we, we happened to get along, but it's not because Tim and I were so alike. And, you know, I was 19, he was in his mid thirties. He had a real job at the USGS. And I was like, the expedition leader, and I, which meant nothing because I didn't know what I was doing. And he, there was like some weird kind of power, like role reversal, where I was this young kid making all the decisions. You know, I was the only one who spoke Spanish, and, and he was kind of along for the ride. And he did a great job, and he took amazing images, and it worked really well. But it dawned on me very, very quickly that Tim and I had to get along. It didn't matter if we were alike or if we liked each other, if we had common interests. It's like, and that's when I learned, you know, you can get along with anyone when you have to. And that's a great lesson to learn on the way to being a commercial raft guide. Yeah, because yeah. it, it, if that doesn't happen, then either it falls apart or you guys get into trouble or who knows, since you had never been in the Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it's like, dude, the notion of sitting in a boat with another human, sleeping shoulder to shoulder in a two-man tent with another human for 1500 miles. And we ended up only doing half of that trip. We can talk about that, but you know, we went from this little town, um, upstream of Yudimaguas called Chipaota. They, 
the Mushukyakta. It was this little Quechua-speaking village that um, had ties to the Rainforest Partnership. And we went all the way down into Manaus, Brazil. And the idea of not getting along with that person, that's simply not an option. And, and then when you fast forward to being a commercial guide, it's like, it doesn't matter who your crew is, man. It's like you're in a boat with people. Your job is to get along with them and to make them like you and make them like being out there. And that's all in your court. And so a lot of these things that were happening when I was 19, kind of fumbling my way down the Amazon, um, ended up really being key sort of teaching moments on the road to where I am now. This is is such a crazy story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. When you get there, you're there with Tam. What's it look like once is everything how you expected it? It was it was totally different. Well, it wasn't totally haphazard, right? Like these big outlandish things become very manageable once you start compiling the right information. So I searched around on the internet and found somebody who had done this before. I talked to them. And so I kind of had a rough idea of how this was all going to go down, you know, like what were the key sections? Like, you know, so for example, where we were putting in was upstream of the Pacaya Samaria Reserve, which is the Peru's largest um, rainforest reserve. And to get access to go through the entire thing, you needed to get a permit with the government and you needed a guide. Um, and this is only for, you know, a little bit of the trip, but um, they, this dude helped me um, just know what I needed. And so all of that we were able to put in place. And then we show up to Lima, we start buying things that I think we need. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> we, we brought some gear, we brought a tent and sleeping bags and water purification and, you know, like all the, all the basics. Cause I had a background in backpacking. So I kind of, I knew how to pack for, for, you know, outdoor living, but it's like canoe trip. I don't know. So, you know, we, we get some odds and ends and, pick up a machete because you know you're supposed to have one in the amazon right like that's you see that that in the movies (laughs) get some rubber boot yeah totally you gotta have a machete gotta have some rubber boots then we show up we we drove from lima by bus down to this town stayed in this town there's no boats we couldn't find a canoe that was that was a hurdle (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so this is so this is one of the things that we didn't foresee um you know i just figured you know you show up and you find a canoe like it's really easy right like this is a giant river you know there are all these little villages everywhere on this river canoes are the major way of travel so you just show up and you buy a canoe from someone well it turns out where we started, there's not really any lumber up there. Like it's, it's, it's weird. It's like just not the right climate. You have to go downstream to get the big logs to make canoes. And so there's like not a surplus of boats. So we ended up staying in this, in this little village. And this village was very, very rustic. I mean, you know, you see all different levels of development on the Amazon. So the, the, this notion that it's all like super indigenous tribes that have never been, you know, that's not what it's like, right? Like there are towns with, with cinder block structure and they get electricity because they run a generator for a few hours every night then they shut it off. And, you know, they, they're, there's access, like you can drive in and out. But then, so that exists, and then there are also communities that are still very, very primitive. And we were staying in one of those, Quechua-speaking indigenous tribe. So we're hanging out there, and it's like the only option is to just live there until the boat builders build us a boat. <laughs> because there were wow. no boats. So we ended up being, from the moment we got on the ground to the moment we set sail, about a month. Wow. Um, just getting things together waiting for the boat builders to build the boat, you know, I mean, all that stuff. And then we ended up with this boat and me and I thought that we were going to have this like fast, sweet dugout canoe that was going to take us to where we needed to be. And they built this dinghy, man. Like it was like pointy bow, flat stern designed to have a motor on it, but we don't have a motor and we're going to paddle this big, heavy, stupid boat all the way down the Amazon. And like, 
nobody knows. Like, dude, I don't know what I'm doing. Tim doesn't know what he's doing. We don't know how to drive this thing. And we're figuring it out as we go. But we get into the Pacaya Samaria Reserve, and it's like, <laughs> it gets so narrow in there. And you're winding through all this stuff. And we're just like smashing into the side of the river and getting raked by branches and like fire ants are falling on us. And like, it's just, you know, it's miserable trying to push this weird big boat around. And then, of course, you know, you figure it out and it becomes second nature. And then you're, you know, you're doing it. But like, it was not like this. Oh, yeah, man. It was just Joe Hockman, Amazon Explorer. Like, it was like, dude, we didn't know what we were doing. And it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. It sounds sounds awesome. Because <laughs> that's what you want, right? You want that adventure. You've got the boat. You've got this strange shape, oversized boat, and you're going down the Amazon River with Tim. What's the plan just to just to survive and document it? Or did you have sort of some stops planned? or? Yeah, right? Like, you'd think you'd have a map. Like, that would be... Or at least I thought, like, yeah, you have a map, and then you know where the towns are and whatever. But it turns out it's really hard to find a good map of the Amazon. For a number of reasons, I think, one, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of demand for it because these communities that are on the side of the river, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty localized. They go up and down to the next village or the next town by boat, and that's kind of about it. And so this, like, macro perspective of the area, there's just not a whole lot of need. And then also, once you get down into the terminus where, where, you go, where it goes out into the ocean that big floodplain is constantly changing. And so mapping it is kind of a fool's game because by next season, that thing is just not really up to date anymore. And so we had a hand-drawn map from this dude who was a really nice guy, uh, and he drew a map uh, that lasted us about three days. And then we were just kind of off the end of the map, and we just went downstream. And once it got to be about the time of day that we needed to start thinking about making camp, we'd either pull over, we happened to be at a little village, or we'd sleep on a beach, and we would wake up and do it again. And then every now and again, when we got to a big enough town that would have an internet cafe, we'd stay there, upload photos, I'd write stuff, um, and update the, the website, and then we'd head back on the river, keep going downstream. So there are internet cafes, I'm guessing in the, yeah. the towns that were like cinder block buildings. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, again, it's like the, the level of infrastructure varies wildly out there. So you can literally, like, so that town that we were living in while we were waiting for that boat to be built, for example, Chipaota de, de Muxiquiaca. So, so it's right across the river. And that's the place that's like, you know, stick built huts with thatch roof and kind of one central dirt road with all these little huts on either side of it. And then it's subsistence farming and fishing and, and that sort of thing. So that's what's going on there. Directly across the river, there's asphalt, cinder block, corrugated aluminum roofs, internet, radio, air conditioning. On the other side of the river, they're cooking on an open fire. And that's just that part of the world, man. It's like, you know, development happens sporadically in areas like that. And then you get down to Iquitos, for example, and well, that's a city of a million people. And that's a tried and true, you know, I mean, second world, you know, fully developed city. What was, you're, you're sleeping on beaches sometimes and you're in the Amazon. What was one of the first times that something happened and you're like, oh, we're, we're out here. This is happening. I don't know. Honestly, you know, I wish I could say that there were these harrowing moments, but we weren't idiots. And I think that a lot of the harrowing moments from stories that you hear about people outside starts with, you make a really dumb decision. And we didn't make very many of those. You know, you kind of, so it's like, I got dysentery twice. That, that was horrible. But I figured we would get dysentery because it's the Amazon and we rolled up with a huge med kit. So I, you know, just self-administered antibiotics and finished the course of antibiotics. And, you know, there were a few really haggard days, um, but that was okay. Um, and, and the medical stuff, I never felt like we were 
I was totally in over my head. I mean, I got really sick once and, and it was in the first week and a half of the trip. And, and we were in this town called Yudimaguas and, and it had a hospital. And I remember, you know, I was like, just, I, it was so early in the trip. I was hesitant to use the antibiotics because, you know, we had months of river ahead of us. We ended up being on the river for two months, he- hesitant to use those antibiotics and just getting worse and worse and was running a really high fever. And, you know, I remember walking myself to the hospital and just like in this crazy little town in the Amazon, it's like everything, you know, you, you, you get a bad enough fever and your vision starts to get a little funny. And so it's like at night and the motorcycles are zipping around the street and like the red lights are like streaking past me. I'm just like, Whoa, this is weird. And you get into this waiting room of this hospital and it's like, just a scene out of a horror movie it's like there's literally like they took me in an exam room and there's like literally like blood on the ground <laughs> just like jesus what have i gotten myself into but what happened was they gave me a shot fever went down wrote me a prescription for some antibiotics i paid like three bucks for them was on the river the next day so it's like there are these moments of fear <laughs> where it's like oh geez and on that trip that they were always quickly followed by moments of relief and keeping on going. I think the most demoralized I ever got, we were in the middle of the Bacaya Samaria and that's remote. There's nothing in there. And we were in there for a little over a week and we were setting up these big, so we would, we would go out at the end of the day when we were ready to camp, we'd, we'd get on the side of the river, start clearing an area with the machete. Good thing I bought one. Turns out you need one (laughs) and um, cleared the area Threw up a little A-frame, like cut down some, there's, you just, there's so much stuff to cut down. So you just cut, make a little A-frame, throw a tarp over it, pitch your tent with uh, under that. Cause it's, there's so much rain, you know, you, you've got your tent for your mosquitoes and your A-frame to cook under and, you know, you ha- and just kind of hang out. And it had been raining for like, man, like five days, just all day long. And it's like, just kind of wet and a little bit cold, you know, you're not freezing it the jungle but it's like every article of clothing you've owned is wet and it has been wet for days and it's like getting out there and you're just hacking through all this vegetation and just mosquitoes are just going to town it's like i remember about day four of that i was like what are we doing and then i remember distinctly the moment when we got the tarp up and over that a-frame the light is a big blue tarp and the light kind of got this blue cast to it as it as it shined through the tarp and and it was just this huge sigh of relief and i was like man everything's fine all we needed was a tarp we can do this forever <laughs> you know um right, you just yeah. learned that you just learn that those moments of you know frustration or you know, exasperation and you feel like you're at the end of your rope it's like you always have more rope <laughs> you know you can always keep doing it. it. It's very, very rare that things truly get bad enough that enough is, is really enough. That's, you know, and that's another one of those great lessons where it's like fast forwarding to the time as a commercial guide, you know, I've responded to all kinds of instances and I've seen all the things that you don't want to see. And it's like, it's never that bad because you can always do stuff with whatever you have available. And that's a really good thing that to, to to know. And I learned that on the side of the river. Yeah, I think that what you said you made you made smart choices the whole time. So there was never that sort of oh shit moment. That trans, yeah. you know, you learn that lesson, and then from that lesson, you learn the ones that come beyond that. Right. Taking you to the to the end of the trip. How did it finish? And uh, what did the what did the rainforest nonprofit say? It's called Rainforest Partnership, and they're still doing awesome things. And check them out. Yeah, or, I don't know how to how you plug things, but there you go. Thanks, yeah, guys. Well, it, <laughs> at the end, we'll uh, we'll get all that info and we'll put it in the show notes so people can check it out. But yeah, what uh, what um, happened at the end, and what they think of what happened? Our plan was to go to the ocean, right? Like start on a tributary of the Amazon, you know, central kind of western. Uh, Peru and get to the ocean. And, uh, and I, and, and for, you know, I had this idea in my head, which was like, yeah, stupid and romantic, but I think that you, you have to create images for yourself, right? That the goals, um, even if they're silly. And it's like, what I wanted to do, 
I wanted to dip my hand in the water, put it to my lips and taste salt. That's what I wanted. So I got to get to the ocean to do that. And, <laughs> and so we're going every day and Tim decides, well, and I think that it was going in his head for a few days at this point. And this is in retrospect, one of the parts that you, you know, you run the risk of when you meet a guy once and then go on the Amazon with him. He had a real job, you know what I mean? He was, he was like a 19 year old kid. He was, he was a grown man with, with a life and, and he had a great job and they gave him time off and, and they gave him an extended leave of absence. They said that his job would be waiting for him if he came back in a month and, or two months or whatever. I think it was two. I don't know what it was. Um, we ended up being there for three months total. Um, so it must've been three. Anyway, he says, I remember this it was in, in the morning and we're, and we're, and we're on the river in the middle of the Amazon and we're paddling downstream. Like we've been doing for a couple months at this point. And he says, you know, I, I got to go back to work. And I said, what? And he says, yeah, I didn't want to tell you because I figured if it was just fun enough, I would just forego that job. But uh, if I don't get back to work, I don't have a job when I come home. And, you know, I was willing to make that sacrifice because, this, you know, when does this opportunity come up? But it's just not that fun. <laughs> and it was yeah. really the trip was really wearing on it and and it had it had become a chore for him you know and it was like he wanted to, to call it the it's all about risk and reward and, and cost and reward right and the cost just started to stack up too high and the reward seemed increasingly thin and he called it and then so we were in manaus brazil halfway down the amazon and there's an airport there. Well, that's how the trip ended. I was really mad at him. And, and, and we were a few days upstream um, from our destination at that point. We were kind of still in between towns. And I was really mad at him. And then I was like, and what are you going to do about it, Joe? You know, it's like, it is what it is. We still have to paddle together. And now we're buddies, you know. Uh, it's like, you just can't be, I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that anger when you still have to like, work with this guy, sleep next to this guy for days in the middle of the jungle before you can even make good on his plan to ruin your trip? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, you know, I respect his decision and it was fine. And the Rainforest Partnership, for them, it was, it was all bonus in the first place. And it accomplished all the goals that they had in mind, right? Like I came back and, gave a couple of lectures at REI and we did a couple of interviews with local media outlets and, and all of it worked well for them. So on their end, this idea of getting to the ocean, well, it didn't really matter. And for Tim's end, it was a great experience and he got back to his job and, you know, he didn't sacrifice too much for it. And on my end, I didn't get to taste salt water, like, you know, in the big scheme of things. So what? Uh, that's how it ended. Yeah, it was still an incredible experience, and it worked out really for everybody. The REI, so you were doing some speaking stuff at REI. Out of out of just this uh, crazy idea, it became an experience, and then now a credential and a memory. Yeah, and it's really funny because it's like I start getting into the whitewater thing, and now all of a sudden you need river miles. And I remember the first, and I hate paperwork, man. It's like it's just something that's not really, I'm not very good at it. And I don't have that thing that, that is fastidious and whatever. And I remember I started training guys and they were like, dude, we need 1500 log miles. And it's like that point. Well, I, I had, you know, 1500 or 2000 miles on the Amazon. I had 350 miles out of the Grand Canyon. And like, it was like, Oh, sweet. Here are your log miles. Like, so it was a really useful <laughs> thing to have done, and it, it saved me a lot of paperwork. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was great, man. Like, like the, the crossover, did it get me any jobs or anything like that? No. I mean, canoeing flat water has nothing to do with guiding people down white water. Um, but did it teach me a lot of things that, you know, I was able to apply to this area? It's like, absolutely, man. It was like, I realized there 
that it doesn't really matter how crazy the idea that you have is. If you just take a really systematic approach to it, you realize that those really far-fetched, outlandish things are very, very accomplishable. I mean, they're, they're possible. Uh, and it's not, again, it's not this like woo-woo thing. It's just like, all it takes is a little bit of tenacity and creativity and, and, and then you just, you just do it. And that's kind of how my whole career as a raft guide has gone, you know, cause I, I fast forward and we go from New Mexico and I gosh, I fell in love with it my first season. And then my first year I was down in Costa Rica guiding uh, year round. And it's just like, you got to know where the opportunities are. And when you see one, you have to take it and you have to say yes and you have to work hard. And then you're doing all the cool stuff and it's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You uh, get a plan, a smart plan, make it happen. And then all of a sudden, oh, everything's great. Everything around me is like what, what I want to be happening. Yeah. So what were you doing in Costa Rica? Whitewater rafting? Yep. Um, so I trained at a company on the Rio Grande in New Mexico. Just fell in love with it, right? So I've, I've just finished college. I'm guiding on the Rio Grande. And this is where things get interesting, right? So I was working for this company that was kind of on its last leg at that point. And it was, it was a pretty fly-by-night operation. And I got trained by this dude, really nice guy. Um, we're, I'm running trips as a rookie because I don't have enough guides. And it's my, you know, I'm a rookie and I'm, I'm running all these trips. And it's a high water year, a boat slips, and we have a fatality. Like first year, few months into the season, and you know I'm first on scene for the thing that you never want to see as a commercial guide, like someone out of a company's, your company's boat, is, you know, and you're and you're giving CPR on the Red River. And the reason that's pertinent to Costa Rica is because after that they lost a lot of guides because you know people respond to those intense situations very differently. And a lot of people were just like, man, I'm out of here. This company's just not for me. And, you know, and all of a sudden, I was a first-year guide. We lost a fair number of guides. And so I was on the river every day. And I was trip-leading trips. And I was doing single-boat trips. And I was doing all the stuff that traditionally a first-year guide just doesn't do. And then was it from there straight over to, to Colorado? Yeah. So, you know, I spent a season uh, on the Rio Grande. And then I did Costa Rica, came back to New Mexico, and was like, man, I just need bigger water. And I have this really great friend named Alicia MacArthur, who, you know, has now opened an awesome company called Indian River Instruction, and you know, she's teaching people how to do this, um, private boaters how to do this thing. I was talking to her, and I, I was like, you know, I, I really want bigger water. And she says, well, why don't you come to the ark? Come run the ark with me. And I said, okay, cool. When? She says, well, I'm, I'm running it tomorrow. Uh, and this was like, you know, 10 PM and I was in Santa Fe and she said, just come up. And I said, okay. And so I packed my stuff, drove up there and packed, you know, I packed my gear, all my, you know, all my stuff was, was at the boatyard in, in Santa Fe. I was living in this horrible parking lot, <laughs> um, you know, on this main road, just living in my car, you know, classic, like just dirt bag raft ride, literally living in a parking lot on the main road, Cerritos Road in New Mexico, uh, in Santa Fe. And uh, anyway, I drive up there, run Bounce Canyon. It's a blast. And we take out. I'm like, yeah, I want to work here. She says, great. And we take out at Independent Whitewater. And Mikey and Wiley, the owners of that company, happen to be standing at the beach right there where we took out. So I got out of the boat and Lish said, hey, Mikey and Wiley, this is Joe. He's a really good guy. You should hire him. And they said, and Wiley, I remember him kind of looking at me. He goes, oh, well, Lish says you're a good guy. Then great. When can you come up? I was like, well, let me go down to Santa Fe and pack my stuff, and I'll be back in a couple of days. He said, great. And then, boom, I was, I was guiding for Independent Whitewater, which was a relationship that has continued ever since. <laughs> They're just right there. You're like, oh, hey, guys. Uh, yeah, you're going to hire me now. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, I've never I've – never, uh, really asked for a job anywhere it's it's kind of it's all kind of just fall, fallen into place i was asked if i wanted to go to guide school in new mexico i said yes i was asked if i wanted to go guide in costa rica i said yes i got off the boat uh at idub 
and the owners were told to hire me. And, and, and then I went and packed my stuff, right? And then at the end of that season, I worked with a, who you know, is now a great friend of mine, um, John Callan, who actually is the guy that you first contacted, and he's the one who pointed you toward me. Um, right. And so by the end of my first season on the arc, John had been going down and running Toro, which was a section that you know I'd gotten on once the, the winter prior, and I mean I just fell in love with that. I mean it is steep, technical, boulder choke, narrow, class five fun. I mean it is just a great time. And uh, he was like, Joe, do you want to come down with me and run Choro? And I was like, absolutely. And so then, that's my second year, second winter. I'm down running Choro, um, and it was just awesome. We did that and. And I guess I fast forwarded a little bit, but I was safety kayaking at that point. And, and if we want to reverse and talk about how, how I got from not being a kayaker to being a class five kayaker over the course of about a year, we can do that as well. Um, Cause that's kind of a funny story and there's a good lesson there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that'll, that'll help us at the end when we talk about the future as well. Totally. Um, so one of the things that, you hear about when you're like, you know, I was a young guide. I wanted to go run all the biggest stuff, you know, be a class five raft guide. That was my goal. Like I started guide school. And I was like, this is awesome. I want to be a class five guide. And it's like, well, where do you go in the United States to run high volume class five whitewater? Well, it's like, and you go to the Gauley River, uh, West Virginia, you know, that's, that's the thing. And so I had spent, you know, a season in New Mexico season in, in Colorado and it's the fall and I'm like, I'm going to the golly and I'm going to go be a golly guide. Like I got there late. I, I had a connection with the company because I had met this dude down in Costa Rica the prior year called Scotty Skaggs, who is this like, you know, he's been doing it forever. Grew up in West Virginia, been doing the year round lifestyle for, you know, 15 years at this point. Scotty's like, yeah, come up to, to West by God and go run the golly. And I'm like, yeah, Scotty, that sounds awesome. Right. And I get there. <laughs> and of course, like I get there late and the head boatman there and, and, you know, I think his name is Noah. And he gave me the best piece of advice I, I got, man. Like he was like, Joe, you showed up a little bit late. You seem like a really great guy. If you really need the money, I can work you on the lower golly. Um, and it's like, but you know, I came up there to guide the upper golly. I want to be a class five guy, whatever. And he's like, but honestly, Joe, you can stay at our shop. You can use this as your home base. But if you don't need the money, don't work here. Just go boat. Because this time of year in the fall, that's when everything in the Southeast is running. You know, so you go up there uh, and you go up there in September and you, you hit the upper Yakagani and then you go down for golly season and then you kind of bum around and maybe go run the Green River Narrows in North Carolina. And then the Russell Fork is running and the Tioa and the Tallulah and all this awesome stuff. And it's like big Southeast classics, you know, I mean, it's, it's really respectable, great whitewater out there in the fall. And I said, okay, you know, I had saved money from the summer season and, and I figured that I could, you know, make it if I didn't work for a couple months before I went down to Costa Rica and, I had started kayaking the winter before down in Costa Rica and just running class three stuff and trying to get my feet wet in that world. And then uh, I came back up in the summer and kayaked a bunch and and got to the point where, where I was comfortable ish in class four Um, and then went up to the golly. And then I was by the end of that fall was running pretty respectable class five. I mean, I was scared the entire fall. I mean, it's like every day it's like, I woke up and like, Oh God, again, really Joe. And it's like, yeah, we're going to go do it. And it's like, you know, I spent the whole fall scared, but again, it goes back to that making smart decisions thing. I was able to progress relatively quickly and I'm not a phenomenal kayaker, but I'm comfortable in, in, in class four and, comfortable in class five that I know, you know what I mean? So it's like, I'm not a world-class kayaker by any means, but I can do it and I can safety kayak and at a level that, that makes sense to be doing that kind of work. And I was able to move through the ranks relatively quickly. Cause it's like, you know, if you, the biggest setback in kayaking is, is taking nasty swims, you know, cause it, it's such a psychological thing. It's like you take a big swim and then you're scared and then you, and then you don't progress. 
And it's like, but if you just break off just enough each time, you go out and you just break off just enough that you can chew, um, maybe a little bit more than you should, but not much more. And you just make really practical stepwise movements, then all of a sudden you're boating pretty big whitewater. And like, I had never really had a huge nasty swim. And, and that was, that just allowed me to continue to progress. And so then by the end of that fall, I was ready to be down in Costa Rica safety kayaking. Uh, and that was a whole lot of fun. What, uh, what does the safety kayaker do? What's his job? So we've got this huge safety net, right? In commercial whitewater, somebody falls out of the boat and they're taught to grab onto the OS line, the, the outer safety line or the perimeter line around the boat. They can't reach that. They're told to hold onto their paddle and extend the T-grip out to, to somebody in the boat. They can't reach that. Well, now they're separated from the boat and somebody's got to be there to get them. And most of the time on class three, and even a lot of class four whitewater, you just have other rafts around, and so you can just step on the gas and, and pick up the swimmers. But once you start getting into faster class four and five whitewater, the safety kayaker is that sort of last safety net in that, in that system that you build around your customers. And so your job is to be downstream of the trip, ready to pick up people that become separated from the raft. So you're kind of the last, the last line of defense, the last piece of downstream safety. So you, you did that down in Costa Rica and then you're, you're up in Colorado. That's where I met you. That's where we're at in the present. What does the future look like for Joe Hockman? You know, I'm at a point where I've been doing this and this is like year six, been just doing the the thing, guiding boats when I'm not guiding boats, running whitewater, gotten to travel all over the country, worked in Arizona and worked, um, and, you know, just boated privately, you know, all over the Southeast and the Pacific Northwest. And, and, and now I'm, you know, when you met me, right, like head boatman and, and doing this side of thing with this company, which I love and would never go anywhere else in this valley, kind of at the top of that ladder. And I've always been really clear with myself that like, whatever I'm doing, I need to be progressing, right? Like, when I was a class three guide, I wanted to be a class four guide. When I was a class four guide, I wanted to be a class five guide. When I was doing that, I wanted to be a really good trainer. And like the training became my focus for, for a number of years. And I trained um, people in, in New Mexico and Colorado and, and really got into that, loved it. And still do, and I'm doing all that. And, and then moved into the head boatman position where it's like, you know, learning all of the logistics and all the other stuff that, that happens before you even get on the water. And now it's like, I've gotten a lot of opportunities to be a part of a lot of rescues and a lot of recoveries. You know, I learned, you know, we mentioned in that first season very quickly, what kind of person I was in that environment. And it just so happens that, that I work well in it and that, and that I, I excel in that really high intensity um, high stakes environment. And, and I think that, you know, when you realize that about yourself and you're, you're constantly trying to figure out how can you best, at least I am trying to constantly figure out how I can best contribute in a big picture. It's like, well, that's a hot commodity. People who can do that kind of work well and, and, and that kind of work doesn't damage them or it doesn't, you know, weigh on them. And, and, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't for me. And that's it, not like, you know, a self-congratulatory thing. I can't even own it because it's like, well, I didn't do anything to get that way, right? As a result, it's like I started thinking about how can I do that side of it full-time? And so I thought for a while about teaching Swiftwater Rescue because I love the teaching side of it to you. But it's still, you know, so you can't teach Swiftwater all year round. And then even if you, you know, you, you do that a lot, it's, I, I don't know. It, for a number of reasons, Swiftwater Instructor didn't seem like the direction and and my buddy, Kyle, who is a shuttle driver for us, uh, he drives the buses at Independent Whitewater. Kyle Armstrong is a former Coast Guard helicopter pilot. We start talking about his experiences in the Coast Guard, and that sounds awesome. And he flew these, these dudes that are called rescue swimmers, and they jump out of helicopters, and they, they swim out to people and, and put them into baskets and put them back in the helicopter and, and then, you know, give 
aid in the helicopter. And like, that sounds so cool, you know? And it's like, man, I should do that because like swimming whitewater is great. And I love being in the water and I love helping people. And I love like, that's like these high intensity, high stakes places. And, and that sounds like the thing. And so I start looking online and, you know, so I, I turned 29 today. Um, that's why my mom's here. I look online, it's like 31. That's the cutoff. I'm 29 right now. And I started thinking about this a year ago. It's like, well, Joe, if you're going to do this, it better happen in a hurry. Um, Now's the time. Because, you know, yeah, there's not a lot of time. And it's like, you know, I think that everything we have, right. And I mean, this goes for everything. Like there's an expiration date on it. Any offer that anybody gives you, every connection that you have, every, I mean, the food in your fridge, if you don't use it, you lose it. And that goes the same for our bodies, you know? And it's like, so you better make use of the things that you have while you have them. And so for me, it's like whitewater is awesome. And I love commercial rafting. I love taking people down the river. And I can do that, you know, ad infinitum. I've got a great friend named Dan Kay who, you know, I spent all, all fall with. And he's a full-time guy and he's 68. You can do that. But man, 31, you can't be a rescue swimmer anymore. And so that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go swim around in the ocean for six years. <laughs> the Coast Guard, I know a lot of, I have a lot of Coast Guard friends up in Alaska because there's a, there's a base right there. I think that's going to be not only rewarding, but also it's going to give you, it's going to give you even more opportunities, which it sounds like you're you're really good at turning into a great things for yourself. So I think that's a great decision and a very cool uh, path that you've taken to get there. Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. Let me ask you this: If you've you've got a a young person in front of you that they're thinking about maybe getting into the seasonal lifestyle, either whitewater rafting or otherwise, what's some of the advice that you would give them? So in the in the whitewater world. I think the biggest piece of advice that every single person going into this should should know is that when it comes to employment, and especially when it starts thinking about working internationally and moving from river to river, you know, you need to understand really quickly that anyone can drive a boat. It doesn't matter how good you are at pushing rubber. It really doesn't. You can teach anyone how to do it. It's not that hard. The thing that gives you opportunities is the degree to which you're easy to work with, you're hardworking, you're ambitious. I mean, those things are the things that get people in the door. Um, it has nothing to do with how well you can drive a boat. You know, we can work on that. The thing that you can't work on is if you've got a bad attitude and you feel entitled and you, you know, you're a first year guide and you want work and you're, you know, it's like, you just have to be willing to put in the time and show up and work hard and be likable and be nice and happy. I mean, our job is to be happy people. And if you're, if you're not that, it's, it's rough, you know, people don't want to hire you. Um, and, and so that's, I mean, very practically, I think the best piece of advice. Yeah, that's good. Don't be a dick is, uh, is always great advice. Pretty good universal rule. <laughs> <laughs> How can people uh, find you or Independent Whitewater or any of the other or where where your Amazon trip is, is can be found on the internet? <laughs> so the funny part about the Amazon trip is we we used this really cool website that we thought was really cool at the time called Trip Tracker, <laughs> and it's since folded. So the all the documentation <laughs> that we did <laughs> has evaporated into the ether. Oh um, no. So yeah, it, it's, you know, I mean, he's got the photos or whatever, but I don't even have the stuff that I wrote, um, which, you know, whatever, it's neither here nor there. That it was called the 2009 Trans-Amazon Expedition. So that might exist in some corner of the internet somehow, but doubtful. And I mean, I don't know. I don't really do much on the social media front, but if anybody has any questions, you know, if, if there are young people listening that just want help navigating or getting into this sort of thing... Um, you can just find me on Facebook. I'm Joseph Hockman, um, H-O-C-H-M-A-N, and reach out. And you know, I'm happy to talk uh, about any of that stuff. And Independent Whitewater, of course, fly to Colorado. If you're going to come raft the Arkansas, it'd be silly to raft with anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. 
So what, uh, are there any questions that I didn't ask you think I should have? I think that one, one place that we could go if you wanted is like talking, you know, you, you kind of mentioned this idea of like seasonal theory and, and what I think about the seasonal life versus the, the more traditional, you know, career and, and how the one leads to the, I, I don't know. I think that the thing that doesn't get talked about very much is how moving from seasonal to not can be a positive move and one where the seasonal drives the, the, the traditional and not just as a fallback. Does that make sense? Cause it's like, I feel like that when you, when you look in the media or you look at these, you look at Instagram, whatever, it's like the, the seasonal lifestyle is glorified and the like work a day is villainized. And it's like, well, there's a huge middle ground, you know, that people exist in and, and work really well in, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That I don't we, know how we get into that. I know there's, there's a lot of, like you said, it's, it's vilified sort of that nine to five. And I think seasonals make that comment or sometimes uh, that the lifestyle is like you said, it's, it's good side, bad side, but the reality is that's not how it is. It's both can be great. It's to me, it's just different train tracks to success. And you just got to find the one that makes you happiest. Like what you're doing, which is you, you're doing the whitewater rafting and you, you found your place and you found a calling and you found a way to make that happen in, in the Coast Guard. And so I think that's uh, it's a unique as far as uh, what I've heard situation, but I think I think it should be more more accepted or more mainstream that, that that's what comes of seasonal work. It, it's a gateway into, you know, finding your calling or finding a place. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's right. And, you know, I, I did a lot of things before I was a raft guide, you know, like I, I baked bread at a bakery in Santa Fe. I used to teach pottery. I used to teach speech and debate. I've done the only criterion that I've ever had in terms of what am I going to do for work is I'm going to figure out what I like to do and then figure out how to get people to pay me to do it. So it's, and, and, and that's how you garner a working education. It's like, wow, bread seems cool. I want to learn how to do that. I should become a baker's apprentice. And then I did. Right. And it's like, and then the raft guiding things, you know, it's the same, it's the same way. And so, so the seasonal life, that's what we're talking about. And the people who do it, they talk about like, and, you know, and I'm one of them, you know, we talk about this freedom and this, this courage to choose what you want to do. And like, you know, there's all this great stuff that we talk about when, when we think of the seasonal lifestyle, but what subtends all of that is a commitment to the notion that what I'm going to do is choose meaning over money. And as long as you can do that and you can do it in a way that's just barely sustainable is, is, is usually how it ends up happening. You end up, in places that you never thought you would, or that you didn't know you would in advance. Right. And, and it does nothing to do with, to me, the freedom from the nine to five or the, the bucking of the establishment. It's like, I'm not, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm interested in, in making really conscientious choices one at a time and choosing meaning, choosing progress, trying to work hard to be, good for myself and my family and the people that I care about and, and, and to ever, and, and, and to progress in that. And then if you do that hard enough and long enough, it might just happen that that points you back to a nine to five and that's no, you know, and it's like, you know, you join the course Coast Guard. It's like, talk about structure, right? Like this is not that that's not the free spirited, like I'm going to have to, sh- you know, cut my long hair and shave my beard and get told what to do. And it's like, but all that stuff, those are, those are accoutrements. Like those things don't matter. Uh, and I think that the people who tell you that they do have missed the point and that the point really is just being honest and, and finding something that, that sounds like an authentic attempt at meaning. And, and you find that in every corner of the world. And you can learn that by being a raft guide and sitting and listening to all these different people that you take down the river every day. Cause there's a lot of them that are authentically reaching out for meaning um, who don't live in a van and smell like shit. <laughs> well, I must say you, when I met you, you had an impressive, uh, mane of hair. So it's going to be, it's going to be sad saying goodbye to that, but 
<laughs> You're making a lot of great points, and that was incredibly well put. And it's, I think it's a message that not only uh, I needed to hear, but I, I think a lot of people need to hear. So thank you for that. Sweet. And yeah, well, thank thank you, Joe, for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was incredible to talk to you, and uh, I'll I'll be in slide again, and I'm I'm definitely going to look up independent whitewater. Well, thanks so much, Joey. It was really a pleasure. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.